Well, last week I told you um, a little bit of my own story of pain and hurt. We talked about letting go of pain and hurt last week. Um, so now we're all free from it. We can move on to the next thing, right? Uh, if you missed it, you can get a copy on the resource table. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. Um, you can get a copy of the DVD or CD on the resource table or download it from our website. But um, since I started sharing just a little bit about myself last week and, and since I just love being vulnerable in front of hundreds of people, uh, I figured I'd share just a smidge more about me as it relates to today's issue of anger. Uh, there are other parts that I didn't tell, of course, last week. But long, long story short, uh, to pick up where I left off last week, much of my story can be characterized by saying simply this. It was painful as a pastor's kid to watch my dad and my family take hits from the body of Christ and get sucked dry in ministry. Long story short. It was painful for me as a pastor's kid to watch that, to go through that, to experience that myself, uh, and to see that in my mom and in my dad. So naturally, I became a pastor. <laughs> it's like the psychologist who goes into counseling to figure out what's wrong with himself. It's not exactly the same, I hope. But So what happened to me as a defense against that pain was that I determined to outsmart, outwork, outlast Every single ounce of the selfish and the superficial churchianity that treated my dad like a personal emotional pinata. And that treated my family's time as if we were everyone's personal butler. That's how I felt about that. So I became, through many years, of seething anger with that. I became this, <laughs> and I choose these words carefully. Neurotically driven freakazoid, neurotically driven freakazoid who would look in the eye of what I perceived as the slightest smidge of impure motive in the body that I saw. And I would buck up and I would say, all right, let's do this. Come at me, bro. Which is to say the pastor's kids like me come with a freakishly sensitive fake meter. Now, don't miss the irony of what went on in me. I worked tirelessly, like a neurotic workaholic, to single-handedly undo that pain and that hurt by fighting to dismantle the unhealthy systems that lead to the kind of injustice that I saw. So let me be real with you for a second and reveal practically what that looks like. That was abstract. This is practical. And, and, I, and I pause. I hesitate to admit this. But I have not regularly taken a single day in seven weeks off for the last seven straight years. Only when we're on vacation or only when I'm forced to by my wife or by Tommy our associate minister, do I take a single day off? Now, that, my friends, isn't honorable. It's sick. And it reveals, it reveals that I believe deep down that God's grace isn't sufficient. 
that I believe that God's grace isn't enough to change hearts because I feel the need to accompany, to accompany His grace with my own version of justice. I have to do it myself, both by pushing others and by taking their burdens on myself in unhealthy ways, which is not honorable, it's sick. And for me, far too much of that way of living for me was motivated by anger. Now, don't pigeonhole me too quickly. Uh, There are other, more honorable reasons why I do what I do. I believe with every fiber of my being that because of my unique experiences, God has called me to uh, lead and shepherd his flock. Uh, I've never been comfortable with the thought of actually doing anything else. Uh, I love Jesus with my whole heart. And I am forever grateful for his love for me. And I want every single nook and cranny of my life to be given totally and completely to him in practical terms. And I want everyone else, I want everyone else to know that same joy of vibrant relationship with God. But for me, it took way too long, way too long to understand the extent to which I had become insatiably angry at church injustice. It has taken for me multiple serious bouts with ministry burnout, three, uh, and bouts with depression to understand how hurt I was, but also to understand how angry I had become. I was hurt, I was angry, and I'm ashamed to say I all too easily gave in to that anger. Now, friends, when we give in to anger, when we give ourselves to that seed of bitterness, we become our own victim. When we give in to anger, we become our own victim. There's a man named Frederick Buechner who's a great Christian writer who expresses this truth well, and we've included it in your study notes there if you want to follow along. He says this really well. He says this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast for a king, a feast fit for a king. (laughs) Then he says this, the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. The skeleton at the feast is you. How many of us, and perhaps some of us don't even know it, how many of us are angrily gnawing at our own souls? How many of us here today continue to struggle with the seeds of anger that grow into redwoods of bitterness? How many of us are still savoring the pain, still feasting on what he did to you? still chewing over and over about what she said about you, still stuffing oneself with the way they did you wrong. Friends, so many people are constantly feasting on old wounds by harboring anger that eats away at their souls. 
what we often call nursing old wounds, is actually keeping them open and alive to motivate unhealthy and ungrateful attitudes in us. We end up angry at people we haven't seen nor talked to for years. We end up angry at people we perhaps haven't even met or people who have long since passed away. A preacher once said that hating people, hating people is like burning down your own house to get rid of a single rat. There's an old saying that says, he who goes to bed angry has the devil for a bedfellow. When we give in to that anger, when we give in to anger, we become open to the evil seed of bitterness, which means, which means we become closed to the godly fruit of grace. In our quiet moments of clarity, many of us must admit that we are struggling with great weights of anger and bitterness that are gnawing at our souls and hindering us from becoming fruitful participants in God's kingdom of grace and of joy. We see in the Old Testament book of Jonah the story of a man whose anger was gnawing at his soul in a way that kept him from experiencing the joy of God's goodness and grace. In fact, Jonah is more a tragedy about Jonah's seething anger in him than it is anything else. If you'll turn with me to Jonah 1, the second verse, chapter 1, verse 2, we'll begin to see here some interesting insight about the source of Jonah's anger and how deeply selfish the root of his own anger really went. Look at Jonah 1, chapter 2. We'll, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2. We'll start there at 1, 2. It says this. This is God speaking to Jonah. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. It was a large city. And call out against it. This is the call of the prophet here. It says, Call out against it for their evil. Keep that word evil in your back pocket there. We're coming back to it. For their evil has come up before me. Now this call from God to preach repentance to Nineveh wasn't in Jonah's plans. And, uh, and a key thing to note here, we can tell from the very beginning of the book that something is wrong with Jonah. Apparently the prospect of preaching judgment in the city of Nineveh, in other words, to their face, didn't exactly excite him. Look at verse 3. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. He ran away. The counselors and the mental health professionals among us uh, are certainly aware of the four F's that are commonly understood responses to trauma. There's fight, there's flight, there's freeze, and there's fawn. There's fight, there's flight or fleeing. This is what Jonah chose. There's freeze, which is just a sort of become catatonic and not know what to do. And then there's fawn, which is uh, a codependent, sort of an exaggerated flattery. Uh, to ingratiate oneself. So we see here that Jonah was, was one who fleed. We don't know all the reasons, but we'll see later that he was not a fan of Gentiles. He was not a fan of non-Jews. And he also wasn't a fan of God's grace. So it says he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, which is not a good plan, Jonah. So he responded to God's call to the city of Nineveh by running as far away as possible to Tarshish, which we know was probably in the far uh, western Mediterranean Sea, 
And uh, he's asking, God's asking Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is in modern-day uh, northern Iraq, in the city called Mosul now. So, way far from one another. So Jonah, who was a Jew, he calls himself a Hebrew at the end of chapter 1, Jonah was called to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jew Ninevites. Now remember that many Jews grew up as basically, uh, not all, but many Jews basically grew up as uh, institutionalized racists who perceived the Gentiles, the those outside, the goyim, the dirty non-Jews, they perceived them as people who weren't worth their time because they weren't the chosen people of God like the Jews were. So, Jonah couldn't understand why God would give the time of day to the Ninevites. Why would God give the Ninevites a chance to repent? One of the reasons for Jonah's anger. So, he stubbornly denied God's call on his life, and he bolted. And as you remember, as a kid from Sunday school, God sent a huge fish who swallowed Jonah, spit him up on shore, at which point Jonah got the picture, went to Nineveh, and reluctantly preached judgment. And the crazy thing is that it worked. It worked. Because God had told him to do that and that it would work. And it worked. Turn a few pages to Jonah, the third chapter at the end of the third chapter, verse 10. We'll start there and pick up the story of Jonah at the end of chapter 3, verse 10. It says this, When God saw what they did, they being the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way. There's that word evil again. There's that word evil again. Take that out of your back pocket from the first chapter, verse 2. Because Jonah 1-2 said, their evil has come up before me. And that's why he was sent to Nineveh in the first place. Here it says that they've turned from their evil way. And then there's a cool word play on this word evil here from 3.10 to 4.1 that we'll point out. So keep reading. We'll get back to this evil thing. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. And that's when the real Jonah, the, the angry Jonah, came out. The wordplay here shows that the evil is no longer with the Ninevites, but the wordplay shows that the, the evil is with Jonah. Look at 4.1. It says, But it... In other words, God relenting against the Ninevites. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now here's that play on the word evil. Uh, This word here for displeased in my version is a different form of the same Hebrew word evil that we talked about in 1 verse 2 and in 3.10. Literally translated, verse 1 says, It was evil to Jonah with great evil. So the Ninevites, who were once called evil at the beginning of the book, are now turning from their evil, and Jonah is the one who's now characterized by that evil. I hope you catch the transition of what's going on here that's triggered by Jonah's anger. Jonah is now characterized by the same evil that he saw that he was so spiteful about in those other people who were the goyim, the dirty non-Jews that he knew weren't deserving of God's grace. That's how anger works, friends. It goes from one person to the next when we harbor it and we feed it. Now think about this situation for just a second. Why would Jonah be displeased that God did exactly what he said he would do? 
The interesting thing is that Jonah is angry because he doesn't like God being gracious to the Ninevites. Read on in verses 2 and 3. It says, He prayed to the Lord and said, this is Jonah praying to the Lord, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? An interesting way to say it. My country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He cries aloud to God, invoking the words of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, if you want to look that up later. Whatever the problem is in Jonah's heart here, it is so bad that he says, just, just take me now. Just take me now, Lord. I can't live with this anymore. He says, I, I, knew, I knew you were a gracious and merciful God. As if that's a, a bad thing. This is what anger reveals about us. Here's the problem going on in Jonah's heart if you're a note taker. Anger places self-appointed limits on the grace of God that saves us. Anger places self-appointed limits on everyone else when it comes to the grace that in fact saves us. Jonah was placing limits on the same grace that saved him. He didn't like the Ninevites, so he couldn't understand why God would would give them the time of day, so he was angry with them. We don't know all the reasons why. That's not the point of Jonah. The point is that God is trying to teach him about his anger. Keep reading. As chapter 4 unpacks Jonah's angry reaction. It says, The Lord said, verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Notice that Jonah gives no answer to this. He gives no answer. Because he is seething with inward anger. Jonah is a bitter and resentful man who despises how God works. The NIV says, have you any right to be angry? And God is basically saying, so let me get this right, Jonah. You're angry because I am compassionate? You're angry because I am a God who relents and is gracious. It reminds me of the workers in the vineyard. If you'll remember the story that Jesus tells in Matthew, the 20th chapter. The master who gives all of the workers in the vineyard the same amount of pay. Both the workers hired at the beginning of the day and the workers hired at the 11th hour receive the same amount of pay even though they work different amounts. And because of this, the workers who worked more, who were hired at the beginning of the day, they grumbled against the master. And in Matthew 20, 15, the master says, Do you begrudge my generosity? The NIV says, Are you envious because I'm generous? I like the KJV here best because it says, Is thine eye evil because I am good? Apparently that was true for Jonah. His eye was evil because God was good. You see, Jonah wanted the Ninevites to get theirs. He couldn't conceive of of these 
dirty non-Jews receiving God's favor. He wanted them to get what in his mind should have been coming to them. Isn't this exactly the same thing we harbor in our own hearts when we seethe with anger and bitterness? The fact of the matter is we want to carry out judgment ourselves. We don't want to wait wait on God's timing for it. We want to be both judge and jury now. The honest truth applied to others and even ourselves is that we don't think it fair that God offers grace to anyone else. Now we're not told a whole lot in the book of Jonah about why he was this way. But it's clear that he had a real problem with anger and bitterness. In fact, even after he reluctantly preached repentance and God said he relented, Jonah's anger is why, in verse 5, he went out to watch the city. I think because he believes that Nineveh's repentance was superficial and didn't warrant God's grace. Look at verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now this this booth typically would have been a very makeshift kind of shelter, probably uh, made by pulling down the branches of a tree and binding them together, often with other branches from that same tree. So there was nothing particularly protective other than bringing together the branches of a tree to provide some shade. We've showed you, shown you sort of a rough picture here. It's not a very good picture, but um, it's a little hard to see. This is the basic idea of pulling down the branches of a tree, binding them together somehow to make some sort of makeshift shelter. Well, apparently this didn't last long for Jonah, uh, nor did it help much because he became uncomfortable. So in a moment of grace... Verse 6, God's trying to get Jonah's attention to teach him about his anger. Verse 6 says, Now the Lord God appointed, circle that word appointed in your mind, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's likely that his booth, his, his sort of tree tent, withered away fairly quickly, so God made a plant to cover Jonah. And Jonah was, in language opposite of verse 1, he was exceedingly glad. Now, now Jonah was glad, not because the heart of God is generous. Not because the heart of God is gracious. But because he was hot and God gave him a plant to provide shade. Friends, how many of us are stuck at enjoying God's earthly provision And don't give a hoot about developing God's heart in us because of our anger. There's another thing I want you to notice about that word appointed that I pointed out to you there. It's an important word that's used throughout the book of Jonah. The word in the ESV here is appointed. And it's an important word that's used in 117. And then here three times in three straight verses, 6, 7, and 8. In 117, it says this, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was 
in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is an important place in the book, obviously, where God provides grace for Jonah. And it's the tip-off here. The word appointed is the tip-off for us in these verses 6, 7, and 8 to show that these are parallels here. But here's the kicker about this. The grace that God appoints is obviously not in the form that Jonah wants. Why not? Why couldn't Jonah see it? The key is because Jonah was angry. He is so angry, he can hardly see what's provided for him and call it God's grace. When we're seething with anger, friends, it's hard to see. It's hard to see the grace. We'll see even more of this in the following verses. Look at 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there's that word again, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. God is saying, hello, who gave you shade? Apparently that didn't do it for him. So verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed, there's the word again, a scorching east wind. This is called a Sirocco. It's just like a huge dust wind that gets in everything. It makes things very hot and dry. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. At this point, Jonah's anger came to a boiling point. Came to a boiling point. Keep reading verse 8. He asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. Here we go again. But God said to Jonah, verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? First time he said, do you well to be angry? This time he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant even? God is saying, do you have a right to be angry? And this time Jonah answers. It's the boiling point in his anger and it comes out and he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Which, of course, is the wrong answer. And God brings a serious Jesus juke and, and tells Jonah the truth about his anger. And we see here perhaps some insight into our own anger. Verse 10, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God is saying, Jonah, you do not get to choose to whom I am gracious. And what is wrong with you? That you pity a plant, but you can't bring yourself to care for the lost souls in Nineveh. God is pointing out to Jonah that his anger has obscured his vision. Jonah's seething bitterness against the Ninevites is really seething bitterness against God. Friends, the truth of the matter is that most of our anger is really because we think God unfair. And it keeps us from experiencing God's grace. I think we often inwardly despise how God works when it's applied to others. We can't possibly imagine that anyone else gets God's grace when we know what they did wrong. 
Because when we do actually believe that others deserve grace, we are then held accountable for treating them that way. I think we are angry because like Jonah, we seethe in bitterness against anyone or anything that brings us pain and hurt. And we want to destroy them and we don't want to wait for God to do it. For many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, anything short of the full wrath of God poured out on the person or the thing that hurt us will not suffice for us. We are angry because God is compassionate. We are decidedly bent on taking up what only God can do by becoming little g-gods ourselves who enforce, at least in our hearts, the self-satisfying justice we think someone else deserves. Friends, anger is a self-righteous judging emotion. It is a self-righteous judging emotion that comes from not trusting God's provision nor His justice. And I would venture to say there's a whole bunch of us, myself included, a whole bunch of us in this room who have some praying to do and some Ninevites to whom we probably need to apologize. Romans 12 Verses 17 to 21. Provide a practical solution to anger. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Provide a practical solution to anger. It says this. Repay no one evil for evil. Remember, that's the thing that Jonah did. Repay no no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The practical solution provided by the Bible is one that Jonah didn't really heed and that many of us probably don't do too well either. It's right there in the middle of verse 19. Vengeance is mine, God speaking. You and I don't get to mete out justice against sin. We can't. We can't. We're not worthy. We don't deserve to meet out justice against sin because we participate in the very sin we see in others that deserves God's wrath. Romans 2.1, if you look that up later. 
I want simply to end by challenging you this week to think of one person at whom you are angry. Just one person. And read the Word to seek God's disposition toward that person. Practice turning your anger over to the Lord instead of seething with it and holding on to it and it feeding you. If possible, contact that person and have a redemptive conversation. If possible, contact the person and have a redemptive conversation and practice. When we become people who practice that kind of redemptive reconciliation, we will have eyes that are increasingly opened to enjoy God's goodness and His grace, both in our lives and in the lives of others. Friends, joy is what is available to us when we let go of anger. The enjoyment of seeing God work in the lives of people is obscured to us when we hold on, when we hold on to that. Let's pray together.